0: Two percent, two percent, two percent.
1: Uh, the two percent's right over here.
0: Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah,
1: anything to support local food. Know what I mean?
0: I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously.
1: Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in.
0: All right, gotta get the plug in there. I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right?
1: Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station.
0: That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, the Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats—those are shows that take you around the country and the world.
2: I'll give you that. So, how can listeners give their support?
0: It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org.
1: I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Cynthia Cherish-Malloran, Reverend DJ Cherish the Love, and you are listening to Primary Food on Heritage Radio Network. So before I forget, let me tell you how to reach out to me and get my attention on social media, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, at DJ Cherish the Love, that is spelled L-U-V, and hashtag using Primary Food, Heritage underscore Radio, And hashtag RevLove. So welcome to Primary Food. Uh, Wow, it's almost the end of the second season. We're about to start the third. I'm going to mix things up a lot in the third season. So please, please, please stick around. And uh, what exactly is primary food? So I learned this really great concept in nutrition school at IIN, the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, that the food you eat, you know, the stuff we put in our mouths and chew and enjoy like this pizza at Roberta's we're staring at, we consider that secondary food. Primary food is everything else in life that nourishes us before we sit down and eat. And that's stuff like enjoying music, reading a book, hanging out with friends, cooking food, a great job, Creative expressions, playing games, exercise. And I'm so glad that I learned this because it was the high quality primary food that I kept in my life while going through chemotherapy last year that kept me happy and healing my cancer. So, welcome. Please, you can call in live 718 497 I'll repeat that again 718 497 2128. Perfect. So, Primary Food is produced by Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit member supported radio station devoted to all things food. So, help keep Heritage Radio Network alive by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Please do it after this episode. Do it now. And I will totally love you forever, and you'll keep Primary Food running and going. So great. So, in continuation, being super inspired by Eric Repair's new book, 32 Yolks, I'm continuing on the topic of creativity. Today, we're going to talk about creativity in the kitchen, creativity with food, and it is my honor to have on today's show, my dear friend, smiling at me, seafood master and then some, Chef Aaron Bashy.
2: Hello, Cynthia. How are you?
1: Executive chef of Maloney and Porcelli, 37 East 50th Street, New York, New York. Hey,
2: Erin. How are you?
1: How are you feeling today?
2: Feeling really good, especially after that wonderful watermelon salad and pizza that I just had.
1: Mmm. Ah. Uh, I should have had some of the watermelon salad now.
2: <laughs> I see a lot of people out there <laughs> having it right now.
1: So I want to talk to you about creativity inspired by the ocean by, inspired by the green market, by your experience at the CIA, thoughts on food and life, your career, the water club, the everything that comes to mind. So, but my first question is, who is Aaron Bashe?
2: Well, uh, I feel that I'm an accomplished chef. Um, working in the food and beverage industry is the only thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I started at the very bottom as a dishwasher and then as a prep cook. And I apprenticed under an Austrian chef right when I got out of high school in the Berkshires uh, named Gerhard Schmidt. And from there, I went to the Culinary Institute of America. And um, from there, I worked with the Four Seasons Hotel Group for a little while. But uh, young in my career, when I was young in my career, I was very fortunate to be surrounded by... um, a very uh, creative group of chefs in Boston, um, one of them being Jody Adams, who is on a new project right now from what I read in Boston, um, Gordon Hammersley, who just closed his restaurant last year, whose name still follows me around um, whenever I have dinner and I see some old friends, or um, when I was interviewing for the Maloney and Porcelli job, uh, the owner, Michael Stillman. It actually blew my mind that he was very focused on my Hammersley's experience and, and mm. very interested in that. And that was really, I don't know, that, that meant a lot to me. What
1: does that say to you?
2: It says that, first of all, he knows food.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um,
2: but I really appreciated the fact that, I mean, we're going way like to the bottom of my resume, you know, and that he took the time and really saw. Um, and it's nice to be working for somebody who sort of sees the whole picture, not just the New York City food scene, mm-hmm. but, but outside of New York City and all over the country and all over the world, actually.
1: So basically honoring your experience from, from the start. Yes, so absolutely. That, that's not typical, is it?
2: Um, I, I guess sometimes yes, sometimes no. You mm-hmm. know, it depends who's doing the research.
1: And you're from Boston originally?
2: Yes, I was born in Boston. Yes.
1: So would you say that you have a New England's sensibility brought to New York? Or how would you describe that?
2: Well, the seafood uh, passion of mine started at a very young age. Mm. Um, I would spend summers with my grandparents in Rockport, Mass. And, and I don't know if you know Rockport or Gloucester. It's a little bit different than Montauk and East Hampton and Amagansett, but it, it's a very beautiful oceanfront community with a lot of commercial fishing. And, mm-hmm. and actually, when you're on the bridge going into Gloucester that's pretty much all you smell is fish and and fresh fish and it's a very um if you watch the show Wicked Tuna actually when they catch the tuna and they bring it back and they weigh it it's all going into Gloucester. Oh wow. So um, at a very young age the smells of the ocean the smells of fish cooking the smells of fish in a restaurant you know was never nasty it was always very peaceful for me actually.
1: Were your parents also in the food industry?
2: Uh, no, they weren't actually. My dad, um, who is actually um, from, was born in Iraq, um, was an engineer, and my dad, my mom was a school is, was a school teacher.
1: So Iraq? Have you been to Iraq?
2: I haven't. I haven't. Um, but I was definitely raised uh, with a lot of Middle Eastern food, and and um, I had an aunt in Queens, and we would always go and visit her um, at least twice a month. And my grandmother lived up the block, and and the smells coming out of her house hmm. from walking uh, up Jewel Avenue to see her will we, we'll always.
1: Oh wow! I can't concentrate now. Yeah, I'm just like thinking about food, food and smells. Just wipe my brain clean.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny uh, how many restaurants focus on trying to pump the smells from the kitchen into the sidewalk. Or they really the do that. Like- I think people think about it. Yeah.
1: Wow. I mean, aside from Dunkin' Donuts and, like, you know, Subway. Subway. I mean, you walk by Subway, and
2: that's all you smell is, is yeast. But that is the most
1: wretched smell of bread. It's not even, like, it doesn't smell right.
2: It, it's, smells... it smells forced.
1: Exactly. It smells super sour and weird. Uh, okay, now I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> so where are you now, right now? What restaurant?
2: Now I'm the executive chef at Maloney & Porcelli on 50th of Madison, and... Um, the restaurant's been there for 20 years. It's a very busy, busy midtown restaurant um, with an awesome clientele. Um, it's in the Quality Branded Restaurant Group, which has quality meat and quality Italian. Um, they have this awesome uh, little bistro downtown in the West Village, Quality Eats, uh-huh. and Park Avenue, and, and many more to come. Uh, it's a very exciting group to be involved with. Um and you know, they, they were really focused on keeping current while staying classic. Mm. Which is exactly perfect for me.
1: Keeping current while staying classic. So I want to talk a ton about, about Maloney and Porcelli, but let's talk about how you got there. So, what's your past been like? You've worked at LaBurnadan, you've worked at the Water Club. What comes to mind when I ask you, looking back, what was the Water Club experience like for you?
2: Uh, the water I loved working at the water club. Um, it was very much based on catering. There was a lot of catering going on there, but I was able to put my my menu items on. Um, you know, it was a different experience. The water club has been there for a long time. Um,
1: How many years were you there?
2: I was there for I was with the group for about eight years, seven years. And uh, two of those were, were at Pershing Square on 42nd Street, uh, working for Buzzy O'Keefe, who owns both of them. And then after that, I was transferred to the Water Club, which is a very seafood, eccentric menu.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's right on the water, um, off the FDR there, which was really good. Too. I've learned more about tides and every and fish jumping. I mean, when you work at the Water Club and you're doing pre-meal on a Sunday afternoon and it's quiet... And you see the bluefish jumping in the East River. It's actually. You
1: mean right there in the East River?
2: I'm telling you, I've seen. I don't believe this. 25 <laughs> to 30 pound wild striped bass pulled out of there. You're kidding me? Yeah, from people I, fishing.
1: I have. I, I just like cannot find that to be true.
2: But I believe No, it, it really is. I mean, it's amazing. And there's really? a lot of. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And are, are you able to eat that fish out of the east river or would you not advise
2: <laughs> you know i'm gonna remain it's up to you you know what i mean um when i you know i live in brooklyn right by the water there right by the verrazano bridge and i see a lot of people fishing over there and catching and i really think that they're fishing and catching to feed their family
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know and, and that's a very realistic way of living you know i
1: understand yeah you know yeah. so
2: i respect that
1: yeah no judgment on that yeah So before the water club you were at, we're going backwards in time now. We're going in our little uh, kitchen time machine. (laughs)
2: Okay. Well, I was at um, Pershing Square for Buzzy O'Keefe. And before that, I had a very interesting experience working with the Prime Restaurant Group, uh, Joey Allaham, uh, which is a very upscale kosher establishment. He has the Prime Grill and the Prime Grill Bentley. And I was hired... um, to open up the Prime Grill in Los Angeles, which I did for about a six-month period. I just went out there, and then once that was open, I came back, and and, uh, he had a place where the Prime Grill is now uh, called Solo, which was a little more upscale um, that I was the chef at, and I left there to go work for Buzzy.
1: And before that?
2: And before that, I had my own place with my wife. We had a little seafood bistro in Park Slope called The Minnow. It was on 9th Street and 7th Avenue in Brooklyn. And um, that was a very educational experience. That was a true farm-to-table, dock-to-table experience.
1: And what was the time frame of, of that experience?
2: We opened the Minnow um, right, uh, actually right after, uh, unfortunately, uh, September 11th. Um, so it was a very stressful time to open a restaurant, but um, the neighborhood really embraced us. It was a small restaurant. And um, we opened at a time when people were just starting to come outside of their house again, and, and um, we were there, and it was a nice time, nice period of time to open a place, a community sort of base place, and that had a lot of fish on the menu.
1: And at La Bernadette, what did you do there?
2: Well, La Bernadette was a very much um, an educational experience for me. I, I started... Um, at the bottom of the, the line, I was on the vegetable station, um, the garmagee and then the veg station, and then I just worked my way through the ranks up to uh, um, Saucier, and at that point I left and went to work for Charlie Palmer at Oriole.
1: Now, you said Saucier. This is something that I'm just learning about now, that you have to master making sauces before you can move forward. What is that like?
2: Time and patience in learning how to extract Flavors and, and I, you know, that strict European training about respecting the food and and learning how to work with the food and and learning how to get the maximum amount of flavor out of, let's say, celery Mm. in ways that no other places can really teach you. You know what I mean? There are certain. There are no rule. There are no boundaries for the extent to go to in a kitchen like Le Bernardin um, when it comes to flavor.
1: And is that specifically a French thing? And when it comes to flavor exploration that way, do you think? Or
2: I feel that the Europeans in general maybe brought that respect for the food to this country back when. I mean, when you read Eric's book, and he talks about taking, um, you know, when you're a line cook. You go into the walk-in and you sort of put your mise en place, your set-up vegetables, things like that. You have a way of doing a pouch, creating a pouch in your apron, and, and, and Eric talks about how that doesn't happen in, in like, Joel Robichon's kitchen or Landon mm. Cossett's kitchen, where you have a tray and you place things on, and, and there's just a respect for the, the food, whether it's a protein or a vegetable or a fruit, that you, you don't see in a lot of other places.
1: I, I really enjoyed reading Thirty Two Yokes. I picked up so many, so many interesting concepts about creativity, and that's why I'm kind of hung hung up on the book. Like, it's a it's
2: a really it, it's a beautiful book, and it, it's very well written. And he's actually a, a really special guy.
1: I'm going to just quote a few things in the book, and just you know get your yeah, <laughs> and then get.
2: I'm almost finished with he's
1: it. He's almost finished with it. <laughs> but you can you can agree with a lot of these concepts, like. Creativity is what brings artistry and cooking. Otherwise, it's just craftsmanship. Do you agree? Yes. Fine dining is about dreaming and the experience.
2: I agree 100% with that.
1: So I want to know more about fine dining. You know, what is fine dining to you, and how can I re- replicate that feeling at home, if possible? Okay. Is that not possible?
2: Um, <laughs> when I think of fine dining... The moment that I think of is uh, my wife and I were at our anniversary dinner at Del Posto. And there was a certain dish with uh, kelp in it that came down, that came to the table. And the captain said, as soon as I walk away, you're going to get a little whiff of the ocean before you a whiff eat. Yeah. of the ocean. And I was like, what? okay, whatever, <laughs> man. And he walked away. And all of a sudden I'm saying... Wow, I smell the ocean. And that, to me, I mean, they really nailed it. Uh, Wait a
1: minute. Was that just a psychological thing? No, it it
2: had to do with the steam coming up and the kelp hitting it at the exact time. And I mean, this type of thought process with with a a luxury place, restaurant like Del Posto or La Bernadette, there is so much thought. Um, If you're on Eric's website... You'll see the the think tank that they have filled with books at La Bernadette and the experimenting that goes on, and you know I don't think any of it, the entrees go on in a day. I think you know there's a thought process behind it, you know and, and, and that's that I think every cook should be exposed to that once in their life, so whether s- they follow through with it or not
1: Oh, I oh, I think I see what you mean, so the idea of someone had conceptualized I would like the the person sitting to experience the ocean how do we give them that experience right how did they deliver that (laughs) do you know
2: (laughs) just through you know proper delegation in the kitchen you know they um if you go into a four-star kitchen there's a lot of focus on i mean some kitchens have cameras actually that that watch and see where the course is but you know there's you sort of there's communication between the runners and the back waiters, you know, three minutes to fire, and, and the, the, it's... it's.
1: So I guess then that the idea of replicating that at home is to replicate the experience, exquisite experience. Kind to of replicate
2: way. that experience at home, I believe anybody can in your own way, uh-huh. but it just, you know, taking your time. You know, if you're making a, a broth or making a sauce or a white... If you're making, like, say... A white wine sauce at home where you're taking white wine and shallots and bay leaf and peppercorns mm-hmm. you don't just turn the fire up and boil the heck out of it you, you, you let it simmer and then you know you you, uh, you just let it simmer or else the flavor goes right up into the hood
1: right up into the hood yeah. and you lose it so more concepts practice until you're proud and then keep practicing a ton more
2: absolutely every day you practice something and every day you learn something
1: Every day, even though you've been doing it for so long, you still learn.
2: Absolutely. And I'm learning that now. I, I mean, I, I work uh, with our, our corporate chef, Craig Koketsu, and it's it's such, it's such, I don't know, it's a relief to work with another chef at this point uh-huh. because it's just somebody you can bounce ideas off of. And, and, you know, I'll put a dish in front of him and, and he'll, I don't know, by the time... It goes, it's about two or three times that I put the dish in front of them, and each time it's different. But I have to admit that by the time that process is over, the dish is miles ahead of where it started. Wow. In efficiency, in flavor, in presentation, and color.
1: And back to creativity. So if the entire meal is a creative act, would you say that it's also in the creation of the meal itself that you experience your creative your talents aside from just like presentation but the actual like planning and preparation of it is that is that for you
2: where the fun is definitely you know when you're when you're doing a scallop dish the vegetables and everything complementing the scallop dish are great and they're colorful whether it's yellow wax beans or fava beans or some sort of puree underneath but the fun part is caramelizing the scallop perfectly so it's that perfect amber to dark brown color and the smell coming off the pan uh-huh. is, you know, there's ways that you saute and ways that you cook scallops so you get you can pick up all those flavors, whether, it, and, you know, for instance, cooking a scallop, learning the right temperature, learning the oil, when to drop it into the pan, and, and cooking it on one side, and just like learning the, the, the fire that you have. So by the time it's almost cooked and you flip the scallop, it's the perfect color almost like a pancake. Uh-huh. It's perfectly caramelized. It's been no, it did not sweat at all. It caramelized because there's a lot of natural sugar in scallops. You take it out of the pan, and there's flavor. There's a fond in the pan in the bottom, and learning what to do to that pan to extract that. So you put that under the scallop. So none of that flavor is getting away. Mm. But if you don't know how to do that, it's very easy to mess it up, whether your pan is not hot enough or if it's too hot. So that's where the practice comes in, and Mm -hmm. that's where the focus comes in. A lot of cooking, um, and a lot of the food that we're talking about right now, the first thing you learn in the kitchen is is focus.
1: Well, talk to me more about focus because that's very interesting.
2: Focus is when uh, you're you're cooking and there's smoke pouring out of your pan, (laughs) and you're not really paying attention. (laughs) And uh, next thing you know, your fish is black on the outside and ice cold on the inside. Uh. You need to focus. You need to feel it. You need your palate trained. You need to, to know when to turn the fire down a little bit. Because you need the pan really hot to sear, but then you need to drop the temperature a little bit so it slowly roasts right after that.
1: Did you always have an intuitive sense of cooking? Or do you feel you learned most of it?
2: The intuition comes with practice, Mm -hmm. but you learn it when you're in school. You learn it when chefs are talking at you in the the kitchen. Um, And your internal timer must be exquisite. It is. However, there are times when you're working on the line. um, I remember when I was a line cook at Le Bernardin, uh, I had the one meat dish on the menu, and it was a rack of lamb. And we had to cut the rack of lamb, so it had to be... The perfect color, the perfect temperature, and the only way I could, under pressure on a very busy night, so I would always have, I would always have a watch, and I always knew that after the proper searing and everything, it was nine minutes in the oven for the perfect medium rare, and I would just go from there. Uh-huh. But it was always that nine minutes, and I had it down, and I nailed it, and it was that's great. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. But you do that under pressure, you know, and that's what distinguishes a good line cook from a bad line cook.
1: Surviving. Under pressure.
2: Surviving under pressure, knowing that you're putting your food up for the chef, knowing most important that you're serving somebody that's paying several hundred dollars for an experience, you know, and, and, and the chef is on the firing line there, man, you know what I mean? Like he, they're not going to say, oh, Aaron screwed up the rack of lamb. They're going to say mm-hmm. the chef screwed up the rack oh, of lamb.
1: Oh, I see. You know? Well, what's the most, at this stage for you, what's the most stressful part of being in the kitchen?
2: I wouldn't say stressful. I think the most important part of being the chef at Maloney and Porcelli is delegation uh-huh. because it's a very busy place. And when I conceptualize dishes, uh, whether it's a special or a new appetizer or a new entree, you have to think, how many pans is it? It should always be, you know, are, you know is the guy or gal going to be able to get it up, you know, get it out, uh, it's a busy place, you know, and, and people want their food, especially at lunch. You know, we, we, people need to eat, and they need to eat fast, and they need to eat good. So you can't just go into a kitchen saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. You have to see the situation, see the machine, you know, and, and, and then find your... You know, Maloney Porcelli's been open for 20 years, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? So I, I'm coming into their world to complement their world, you know?
1: I'm glad you said that. This is the perfect segue going into their world, which is mostly meat, and you were coming from a seafood background. Mm-hmm. What was that transition like? Well, first of all, your transition from the water club to Maloney and Porcelli. How did that come about?
2: Well, I was at a stage in my career, um, you know, uh, in all honesty, I got a phone call, and um, I see what Michael Stillman is doing with the company. It's extremely exciting. Um, and so I figured, what the hell? <laughs> I'm going to go hear what this guy has to say. And, and I hit it off with Chef Craig, our, our initial, you know, I'd gone on a few interviews. Um, this was my second sort of large corporate interview. And I was very nervous because I didn't really care for the first one. And I really enjoyed my conversation. And, again, I could see that he did his research. and, and he. Um, but for me, I, I really, um, you know, when you when you go for a chef's job, there's a whole interview process, but the, you know one of the most important things is this tasting that you have to do. You have to mm-hmm. do a tasting. And you know before we were talking about competitive cooking, the tasting is like a test, and, and I never tested well as a kid. So you, you really have to not – you have to really trust yourself and trust your intuition and trust your food, and you can't be nervous. You have to just believe in yourself. And um, so I did the tasting for the group, and – afterwards we sat down and we were talking and uh it was a funny thing because uh michael stillman said we started talking about steakhouses and and what i thought and, and the first thing i said was well my favorite steakhouse experience was cut at the beverly wilshire in, in los angeles on wilshire boulevard however i'm not really a steak guy i'm a fish uh-huh. guy uh-huh. <laughs> and then i thought to myself oh why did i shit. say that i just that was probably the <laughs> stupidest friggin thing i could have said to this man At that point, he smiled and clapped his hand. He said, well, that's perfect, because that's exactly what we need at Maloney and Porcelli. We need an energetic chef that can work his way around the steaks. Now, with that said, I've learned so much about meat. We age all of our own meat at Maloney Porcelli, which is a a 28-day age, our New York strips and our our, um, ribeyes. And I'll put our, our, New York, our aged New York strip and our ribeye up to any, between our broilers and our broiler cooks, and the way that we age the meat uh, up to any steak in the city. Wow. I'm very proud of the meat that we're serving there.
1: Well, what's the process of aging? I was always curious about that.
2: Uh, we have a, um, the exact temperature, I believe, is, in, is uh, slightly above 40. And we date them and we go in and we just rotate. We have uh, short loins for porterhouses that we cut into porterhouses. We have um, the New York strips on the bone, and we just continue to rotate them. It's basically a cooler that's slightly warmer than a a walk-in.
1: And for how many days again?
2: 28 days is what we shoot for.
1: Wow. What happens if you're too short of 28 days or too much past 28 days.
2: It's just all about gearing and, and you know, looking at your reservation book and, and it, it's all... Uh, oh, it's I logistics. mean, if it goes over 28 days, it's probably a little better, but um, that's that. It, it ages for at least 28 days.
1: And what have you got going on there now as far as daily specials and
2: well, we do um, a seafood special every day. We do a soup every day, and if it wasn't in the middle of New York Restaurant Week, we would have an appetizer special as well.. Uh-huh. But right now we're in the middle of Restaurant Week, uh, which we're doing for dinner only. It's going very well. Um, I actually don't mind New York Restaurant Week. Uh, I look at it as a way to promote the restaurant. Um, we serve pri- Our menu is primarily menu items with an addition of a couple items. I have a a nice shrimp and avocado salad on there. Uh, But we really want the customer to experience Maloney and Porcelli uh, the way it is if if and when they come back.
1: And you've got a wine special going on also, Uh, right?
2: We have a wine special that's actually um, every night of the week. Um, It's an $85 wine dinner, actually. Um, Three courses. And there's always a sparkling, always a white, and always a red. Our... um, Wine director Vincent chooses new wines every night, and it's definitely one of the best deals in the city. After 8 o'clock.
1: Super hungry, super thirsty. We're going to go and take a little bit of a break, and we'll come back and we'll talk more about creativity in the kitchen with Aaron Bashy.
0: Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MoFAD, the museum of food and drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network, and we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened Mofad Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing flavor, making it and faking it. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami, and the Willy Wonka inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MoFAD Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org.
1: Welcome back. This is Cynthia cherish Malloran and I am uh, with Aaron Bashy, executive chef of and Porcelli. That was, obviously, the song was called Sushi, by Joni Leeds, who was our musical guest last episode, last week. Aaron, love of seafood. Mm-hmm. Do you love sushi?
2: I love sushi. Uh, I eat sushi.
1: How many days a week do you eat, you eat sushi?
2: Um, I eat sushi once or twice a week.
1: Once or twice a week? Yes. And where where is your favorite sushi from?
2: Oh, man, there's so much good sushi in New York right now. Um, we have a little place in our neighborhood. I don't even know how to pronounce the name of it. It's a little family-run place that um, I think my wife is getting sick of going to. But, <laughs> you know, all week with this meat, I, I all I want is fish every <laughs> weekend. Um, I was, I'm a big fan of Blue Ribbon sushi. Okay. Um, and then there's a place... Uh, on West 3rd Street, uh, I'm reserved to go to next week called Sushi Zo, and he's from Los Angeles, and I'm very excited about that. Extremely excited.
1: Wow, that sounds... And I'm going
2: really... by myself. That's how much I <laughs> love sushi. That's... To, I was going to say. So I can focus <laughs> and really just take it all in.
1: Well, to Chef Aaron Baushi, what makes good sushi? Great sushi, I should say. What's great sushi to you?
2: Okay, well, being a chef, the fresh fish part of it goes without saying. So for me, what I focus on is the rice. Ah. The rice, uh, to me... This is great. It's coming from a chef that always screws up cooking rice. I always <laughs> have the guys in the kitchen cook the rice. <laughs> I could read the recipe. I could do anything. Rice is just not. And so I really have a lot of... I mean, and uh, if you see this movie, uh, Hero Dreams of Sushi... Oh, I saw that. And the rice Amazing. farmer comes in and he says, Hero's one of only two chefs in Japan that can cook this rice. I'm saying to myself, I believe that. <laughs> you yeah, know? I, I totally I get it. That. I got
1: goosebumps. That's a gorgeous film. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: A... Uh, do you get any great sushi out on East End of Long Island? One of your favorite places? Tell us about well, this Well, the, the
2: best sushi on the East End of Long Island, in my opinion, is at the West Lake. It's called, the, it's called West Lake, and it's at the West Lake Fishing Marina the West Lake, uh, on West Lake Drive in Montauk, which is the East End of Long Island. Uh, it's probably my favorite place to to go uh, for free time at this point. Um, Tell
1: me more about the East End. I haven't been there enough.
2: Well, apparently, coming from somebody that grew up going to Rockport and going to New England sort of beaches and stuff. What's great about the East End of Long Island is that the water is warm. I mean, oh. you, my wife is from Maine, and, and like they have the most beautiful oceanfront beaches in Maine, and the water is so freaking cold. And the same thing above. But when you get out to Montauk. And, and out there, I mean, the water is just pristine, and it gets up to, like, 70 degrees, but yet you have that New England feel, you know, ah. on the beaches. Uh, but we've been going out there now for a little over 20 years, and I'm fortunate enough to have embraced the community. They seem to really like us, you know, when we go out there. We really avoid the scene, Uh quote-unquote, and and, uh, we really know a lot of the locals, and and it really is...
1: I have to meet up with you out there and just kind of get my education, finally.
2: What what is that line? Everybody says, well, where do you like to go? And I always say, (laughs) I don't. I cook. You know what I mean? You go to to Gosman's Fish Market or any of the fish market, man, and that fish is literally right off the boat.
1: You know, speaking of that, you gifted me with one of the most exquisite experiences, actually.
2: Which uh, which one?
1: You once gave me a raw scallop.
2: Oh, I remember. They were right out of the shell. Remember that? I remember that. That was at the water club. Yeah. That
1: was... Actually, I didn't know you could eat it raw like that. So yeah, was, those,
2: were, those were those pecanic-based scallops. That Massive. Uh, we use... Um, you know, one of the... Guy, I, I try to get as much of... Uh, wherever I'm a chef, I always try to fill it with things from Montauk. And we serve these Montauk pearl oysters, which, you know, the guy texts me from the dock asking me, how many do I want? Amazing. And he's the one that brought those in that day. Huge.
1: Actually, I was scared. I didn't realize you could eat it raw, and I thought, should this not be cooked? But when you gave it to me and I ate it, it was like sweet.
2: And then and I the remember texture? that same night, we had the oysters with the green stripe going yes. down the middle of it because of the algae that it was eating. So let's that talk time about the
1: green stripe and the oysters again, because that is also very exquisite. So... What type of oyster was it again?
2: Why was there a beautiful Those green Those were from um, Washburn Island, which is next to Wellfleet in Cape Cod. So, and I believe wow. his particular oysters were one of the first shellfish. I don't know. There's a story behind the Washburn oyster. But I can tell you, a year after that, they didn't have the green stripe going
1: really? down the
2: middle. So it's it's a nature a natural thing. It's not toxic or I, anything. It's no, all it's has to do it's
1: got to be algae, right? Algae, yes. But it it didn't have it the following year. Yeah, like, that's a sign. I was bummed,
2: man. I was like, "Where's the wow. green stripe?" And it, it only happened for like. Three weeks, and I kept calling and saying, You know what is it?' and they said, well, don't get used to it because it's just the uh, don't get used to it <laughs> it's the water temperature and what wow. the oyster is eating right now, and as soon as it warms up it's going to it's going to go away, so
1: how many oysters can you eat in one sitting?
2: I could probably eat I thought of that quite a bit, I could probably eat two dozen
1: two dozen, yeah, I think but I, could. I would need some
2: bread or something solid also <laughs> you know <laughs>
1: So I'm going to ask you a few questions about preparing seafood. Common mistakes in preparing seafood. What what are the most common mistakes in preparing or cutting or serving up fish?
2: I think the biggest challenge with cooking fish at home is getting your pan hot enough. Pan. Because what ends up happening is people will set their oven to like 350, 375. They'll slap a fillet of codfish on there, rub a little oil, salt, pepper, smear some garlic on there, throw it in the oven. And what ends up happening is the fish doesn't sear. It, it sort of steams. So all of the moisture is coming out of the fish, all the steam. And the second you open the oven, that, that like steamy, like soggy fish smell comes out. And your wall immediately permeates your walls and your whole house smells like fish for a week. huh. Whereas if you get your pan hot enough or if you turn your pan, your oven up to, let's say, you could take the same piece of codfish. That you were baking at three hundred and fifty degrees and turn your oven up to four fifty, put the same piece of codfish in, it'll get nice and lightly caramelized on top, and you'll have more of a sweet smell with the essence of the ocean rather than dank fish.
1: Dank fish.
2: You know, not dank, but like because <laughs> I'm if you're starting with fresh fish. <laughs> fish, it's not gonna smell <laughs> dank. However, um, it will smell it will smell your house. You yeah, know, no, it, I totally steam, get that. I steam. totally
1: get that. Yeah. Lobster, do you prefer it broiled, grilled, or steamed?
2: Um, Okay. If I'm eating lobster cold, I prefer it steamed and chilled. But if I'm eating it hot, I prefer it. uh, Here we go. (laughs) Here we go. I prefer it (laughs) smeared with butter, doused with brandy and a little salt and pepper and finished under the broiler. Because
1: you're talking to a chef, of
2: course. Yes. I eat a lot of lobster because when we're busy at work... If you get hungry in the middle of service, the only thing you have to go to is grabbing like a spoonful of lobster salad and jamming it in your mouth. Oh, lucky you. (laughs) Moving ahead without stopping.
1: That's hysterical. Muscles, uh, common mistakes in preparing mussels.
2: First and foremost with mussels, you have to realize that there are some, okay, mussels have to be extremely fresh. When you buy the mussels, make sure that they're shut. If they're not shut, tap them and if they don't shut right away don't buy them because what's going to happen is you could have a hundred mussels in a pan if you had one bad muscle the whole lot it it smells horrible Ah. and it has a really bad flavor Uh. that i don't want to describe yeah let's not (laughs) um however when you have really fresh mussels that are tight and a little heavy um you know, there's the Bouchot muscle. If you're in any restaurant um, coming from Maine, there's a lot of people doing these Bouchot muscles or rope-cultured muscles. That means the muscles are, were raised not on the bottom of the ocean, but like a, a rope, on a rope, and, and they're clean. and, and uh, On
1: a rope? They're attached to the rope? Yeah, they attach themselves wow. to the rope. Uh, wow. Yeah. Clams. Common mistakes. Preparing clams and Scallops.
2: Okay, clams, I feel you shouldn't mess with at all Unless you're, uh, you know, like the classic baked clam is just a little garlic, a little wine, a little breadcrumb um, It's very easy to overpower the clam If you're doing a fried clam, you don't want to overbread it I mean, the, the clam has such a beautiful flavor That you don't want to overpower it
1: mm-hmm. And oysters
2: Oysters, keep it simple
1: and how do you know when oysters are bad? People keep saying, like, oh, I got food poisoning from an oyster. And wouldn't you know if the oyster was bad Yes, before? you would.
2: I have very strong feelings. toward. I mean, I, sometimes maybe your body ha- had a, a reaction or something. <sighs> but if an oyster is bad, you would smell it a mile away. You would smell it. I mean, it, it smells really bad. And when you're eating oysters, if you open oysters, always remember you want to see a full shell. A full, like the meat should be almost the size of the shell. It should be filled with liquid. And when we open oysters at Maloney and Porcelli, it looks like a a, a tiny little ice skating rink on top of it. It, it, It's like crystal clear. It's not beat up at all. Um, Where are your favorite oysters from? Right now I'm going with, uh, I have two favorite oysters. Uh, One of them has a funny name. It comes from Blue Island Shellfish, which is in Sayville, Long Island. And uh, it's called the Naked Cowboy Oyster (laughs) and the Montauk Pearl.
1: Speaking of naked, so aphrodisiac, yes or no?
2: Uh, whatever you want to believe. <laughs> <laughs> do you not, if, not if your spouse doesn't like oysters or your partner.
1: Now, do you ever cook with seaweed or, or with salt water?
2: I do, yes. Um, I like using seaweed. I like using the essence of seaweed, oh. um, especially when poaching. Um, I actually know that there's a product going around the city right now. They just left a sample at the restaurant uh, of Mediterranean seawater. To cook vegetables Medi- and, and stuff, wow! like and, yeah. Bottled
1: Mediterranean. Yeah, it's, it's water. in like a, a
2: pouch, so I'm going to be messing around. Going to be messing around with that tomorrow. Oh my gosh! Um, and, and Someone and shipped ass-
1: me water from the Mediterranean. I want to mess with it.
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> That's incredible.
2: Yeah.
1: And what are your thoughts on farm-raised fish?
2: I have, as long as it's done um, properly, you know. Um, there's some excellent farm salmon's out there. Um,
1: what are the ones to stay away from, farm raised wise? Because I've heard people say tilapia, don't
2: touch it. But. I wouldn't, you know, it's funny. Uh, when you go out to Montauk, there's a, a sticker that a lot of the locals have that says uh, tilapia is not seafood because it's all <laughs> farm raised <laughs> and whatever. You know, ah, it, it's all um, relative, you know what I mean? There, there's some great. Farms off the coast of Ireland right now, and um, I see. that are that are just—they let the swim, the fish swim. You know, not like on top of each other, but the, the water is ice cold. And so it's clean. about the farm
1: itself. Yes, basically. absolutely. Yes. And as far as food safety, you know, people talk about mercury all the time. It's just about not having too much of something. Or what I are think your thoughts? anything
2: in excess is you know is, is um is is too much.
1: Yeah. Well, food has the power to make even the loneliest person the center of the universe. That, I think that's a, that's a really, really special statement I got from 32 Yolks. What do you think about that?
2: I think that's totally true. You know, it, it, At Melonia and Porcelli, we have a little chef. It's an open kitchen, as you know. Yes,
1: it's gorgeous. And, it.
2: um, you know, there's a lot of times that people come in and sit by themselves, and I always try to do extra things for them. I mean, they're right in front of me. And, you know, the most important thing for me is to to have them leave smiling, you know, and and that's usually what what happens.
1: Well, in our last minute or two, what are some thoughts you want to leave us with? You know, your imperative as a a chef, what do you want to put out there and keep doing in your career?
2: I think more and more as I get older in my career, I'm focused on health and being healthy. Um, I think there's a lot of health issues in the country right now, and I think a lot of them are are tied to not eating well, um, not raising food properly. um, But I'm really focused on nutrition and health as I move forward, and I think everybody should be. And I think that if you really are focused on nutrition and health and not always running to the pharmacy for a pharmaceutical drug Mm -hmm. and, and just trying to cure through food and believe, I think your body reacts to that.
1: What are you having for dinner tonight?
2: Well, I just had watermelon salad and, and margarita <laughs> pizza, and I have to go back to work. So I'm not I think that, uh, you know, <laughs> You're done and that's me. how you know, my doctor always says, as you get older, don't eat right before you go to bed. It's very bad for you. And, and you, know, I, you know, I'm just going to digest. However, <laughs> I may have another salad or, or a slice of meat when I get back to work.
1: Thank you so much for being with me today, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's so great, and I was really glad to be able to tell you how grateful I was about the scallop.
2: Oh yeah, and the and the algae and the oyster. Super
1: special. Well, you've been listening to Primary Food. Please go check out Aaron Bashy, Chef Aaron Bashi at Maloney and Porcelli, and he's got uh, some wine and food. our wine dinner. Yeah, check every, out every the night wine of dinner. the
2: week. Ask Vincent to choose you a nice nice glass.
1: Look for Vincent. All right, Well, primary. Food is produced by Heritage Radio Network, nonprofit profit member-supported radio station, and uh, devoted to all things food. Any last words, Aaron?
2: No, just when you come to Maloney Porcelli, you have Gaetano and Trey and Megan. If Vincent's not there, they'll have you back, and they'll set you in the right direction, and, and uh, they'll tell me when you're there.
1: Please go. Thank you so much, everyone.